So this morning's message I'm calling, it's kind of a little bit of a complicated title, but um, I, I couldn't land on one. But I, I, I'm calling today Peter, the fear of the Lord, and the new covenant. Um, last week when we were in Malachi, we, we saw God rebuke the priests in Malachi's time because they did not fear the Lord. And because they did not fear the Lord, they did not revere him, they despised him. They offered him what was useless to them as sacrifices because they considered him so little and worthless. And they took his word that he had given them to shepherd his people and they instead exploited the people with empty teaching which favored some over others. We don't understand exactly what that scenario was but they, sh- they played favorites with people. And essentially that means they were exploiting and leveraging God's word to exploit and leverage God's people for their own ends. So they, they had no fear of the Lord. And God contrasted these priests with the ancient Levite priests who he said, feared my name and stood in awe of his name. That's what Malachi 1.5 says. My covenant with him the old priest Levi, his people representing the old priests, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. The fear of the Lord, having a reverence for his holy name, is crucial if we're going to love him and serve him as we should. And one of my greatest hopes for this series in Malachi is that it will stir up in us not only a renewed zeal for the fear of the Lord, the reverence for him, and the glory of him, but it will also, as we see the failures of Judah under the old covenant, and as we recognize our own shortcomings in fearing his name and revering who he is and longing for his glory that we might come to a deeper understanding for how the new covenant makes possible in us what was impossible under the old covenant alone. It's not to say that God didn't work great work through his spirit in their hearts at times, but the old covenant as a covenant between God and his people, was unable, due to the sin of the people, to change them. And as we hope, I hope to show today, it's a very different situation than for us under the new covenant. And to kind of get there, I'd like to zoom in this morning on Peter. Because Peter lived under both covenants. And I'd like to take a look at his life before the new covenant in terms of the fear of the Lord when he was a disciple of Jesus under the old covenant. And I'd like to look at his life in terms of the fear of the Lord as a partaker of the new covenant. So that's why I'm calling this Peter, the fear of the Lord, and the new covenant. But what I want to do first before we get to Peter is do a brief primer on the fear of the Lord because it's one of these terms that's not exactly technically illustrated in scripture like a dictionary and it can be misunderstood. But again, we come back to Malachi 1.5, and we see in this issue of the church as it was then, the gathered people of God, how crucial it was for the priests, the leaders of the church, to walk in the fear of the Lord so that the people could walk in the fear of the Lord. And without that, the church was being destroyed by the leaders and in the hearts of the people. So I I think when we read in Malachi and talking about the fear of the Lord and God says in verse five of chapter two, my covenant with him was one of peace and life, life and peace, and I gave it to him. It was a covenant of fear. He feared me. He stood in awe of my name. I think that is, is not a new idea after the fear of the Lord. In other words, he feared me and also He stood in awe of my name, but I think that he stood in awe of my name is getting to the very heart of what it means to fear the Lord, to stand in awe of his name, to have 
Sometimes the scripture uses the word tremble. I don't think it literally always means tremble. But in your heart, it's that sense that the, the ground underneath your feet shakes as you come to terms with who Almighty God is. And there's this reverence in your heart at his character, at his attributes. That's what it means to fear the Lord. And see, the, the fear of the Lord is really wisdom. Proverbs says that wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. Because the reason why Proverbs says that, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, is because the fear of the Lord recognizes fundamental reality. That's why it's the beginning of wisdom. Because if you're going to start with wisdom, you want to say, what are the basic fundamentals of reality, right? And the fundamentals of reality is that God is creator. That he is almighty. That he is all-powerful. That he is holy and just and glorious. And that we are not him. We are his creation. And because of that, we owe him awe and honor and worship. One of the most provoking features also of the fear of the Lord is, and this is what makes it, this is what helps us understand the, the nuance, if I could put it that way, though I think nuance is maybe too gentle a term, but the difference maybe is better between the fear of the Lord and being scared of God in a, in, a, in a terrifying horror movie type of way. Being terrified of God is, is not what God is calling us to when he calls us to the fear of the Lord. We see in scripture that the fear of the Lord is completely compatible, compatible and often goes alongside of the love of the Lord. Deuteronomy 10, 12, 20 through 21 records, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Fear the Lord your God and serve him. Hold fast to him and take your oaths in his name. He is your praise. He is your God. Or we might say, he is your God who performed for you these great and awesome wonders you saw with your own eyes. See, rather than driving us away from God in terror, when a right fear of the Lord embraces the understanding that this awesome God who's holy and majestic, our creator, unfathomable in his being, that he is full of love and he's full of mercy, that he has a heart that's also tender, that he is longing to forgive, that he is full of compassion and loves to be gracious. When we see all that, the fear of the Lord draws us close to him to seek his tender mercy for our sins, to crave his Holy Spirit's help that our hearts might be changed. So the fear of the Lord is different than an unqualified, terrified attitude about God. That's not the fear of the Lord. And so there's some nuances here. It's, it's, it's important to, to recognize these tensions and try to hold them together. We see things like Hebrews 12 where we're told in Hebrews 12, the Christians there are told to fear the Lord because he is a consuming fire. But in that same section, they're told to draw near to him with all of their heart in full assurance of faith. In Philippians 1, we're told to work out our, fe- work out our salvation with fear and trembling, with a reverence, with a holy awe, But then we're told, because God's inside you, living in you, working this in you. 1 John 4 tells us that that perfect love drives out fear. And so in one sense, we should look out for the kind of fear that, that 
fills us with, certain, with, with, with a dread of God's wrath falling upon those who are covered with the blood of Christ. We should not fear that in one sense. Romans 8 says that he has not given us, a, or sorry, it's in Timothy, that we're told that he's not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and a sound mind. Nehemiah 1.11, Nehemiah is praying and, and he's talking about those who delight to fear your name. So it's like, how do we juggle all these things? People, God's people are to delight in the fear of the Lord. First John tells us, that perfect love drives out fear. What, what, what's going on? Well, I think oftentimes scripture uses the same words and, and there's a difference in what those words are, are intending to mean. I, and I think it's just not a, a difference in the words, but it's a difference in context. Like what's going on around these words? If you're a person who loves Jesus, has confessed your sins, and you are seeking to live for him, and yet you're fearing his punishment all the time, John is saying there's something wrong. You need to understand his love much better than you do. For his love should drive away that kind of fear for one who is actually seeking to follow him and wants him. If you're in the crowd and Jesus says, come to me all who are weary and heavy burden and I'll give you rest, and you hear those words and you think, oh, I'm not coming, I'm not coming. You're too scary, I get away from me. I, I'm afraid of you. You're just going to judge me. You're just going to, you're going to destroy me. That's, there's something wrong. That kind of fear is not the fear God wants us to have. I, I, if, on the other hand, you're about to move into a sin that you know is really bad and is really captivating and is really addictive and is really going to harm you and harm other people, and you say to yourself, you know, it's all good. Don't worry about this. God will forgive me. I think the Lord would say that you need to fear his holy name in that moment. If I'm a pastor and I want to take shortcuts with the word of God or shepherd people the way that it's going to make them feel good, it's going to make me feel comfortable, I think the Lord would say, Albert, you, you should really be fearful of me. You should revere my holy name, but you should also be afraid to take my word and exploit it and leverage it for yourself. I think one of the easiest ways that I can kind of make a beeline to get something of this is to, is to go back to the idea of a dad. You know, my dad was an Olympic rower. He rode in the Olympics, and I've told this many times before, so maybe you guys have heard this, but he rode in the Olympics in 1956. Rowing is a really, really hard sport. My dad was incredibly strong. He was a super, super, superman dad. He was strong. I mean, he was 86 years old when he died from cancer, and he died in December. But in August of that year, he was still writing newspaper stories as a journalist. At 86 years old, he, he really never retired. He, he slowed down a little bit, but he had so much energy and so much strength, and he had dad strength. I don't know if you, you know what dad strength is, but it, it felt like I could be 17, 18 years old and, and, and about as big as him, but, but if we were to arm wrestle or he was to hand me something or picking up something, it felt like his body was just strong because he was old. <laughs> Dad strength is a real thing. <laughs> and so, but he was also a dad who disciplined me. And he disciplined me pretty well. I mean, I, I, he never abused me, but he wasn't afraid to use the wooden spoon. And he would use that line, this is gonna hurt me more than it's gonna hurt you. And I never knew what to do with that line because I don't think it really did. But my point is, I, I revered my dad. And, and I would have been very frightened to raise my hand against him when I was a teenager, when I was a young man, because he was very powerful and also because I respected him and his place in my life. He tried to be a good dad. He was also tremendously strong. <laughs> and I would have been I had the fear of dad. I, I wouldn't have raised my, I wouldn't have wanted to be in a fist fight with my dad. 
But there was, I don't think there's anybody I enjoyed hugging more than my dad and running too. I mean, my dad hugged me. He loved to hug me. He gave me hugs all the time. He was extremely physically affectionate in godly ways. And so, in one sense, I was afraid of hitting my dad, getting a fight against my dad, dishonoring my dad that way. And I was also full of love for him and would hug him and run to him, you know, on the spot. And he would hug me all the time on the spot. So I, I know not all of us have, I had a good dad. Not all of us have, have had dads like that I have. And I, and I don't, I don't want to act like all of your dads are those models. But I think even in our imaginations, we can get something of the idea of, of what does it mean to have a healthy fear of the Lord? What does it mean to have an unhealthy fear of the Lord when we think about these things? What's really interesting about Jesus Christ is that Isaiah tells him, tells us, Isaiah tells us in his word about the Messiah, about Jesus Christ, that the spirit of the fear of the Lord would rest on the Messiah. Did you know that Jesus Christ feared the Lord? He feared the Lord, his God. And yet, he was one with him. He was full of love for him. He was delighted in him. He, he knew his father's love perfectly. He knew his father's acceptance unquestionably. And infinitely, he knew his father's lavish affection for him. There was no one God delighted him. There was no one that the Lord delighted in more on the earth than his son. And Jesus knew this. And yet he had a great reverence for his father. So I, I hope some of that helps us to get a sense of what the fear of the Lord means. I have more passages on that that I could give you and direct you to that'll probably do better than my attempts at metaphor. But it's an important and crucial and necessary trait for us is to have a reverent awe for the Lord. And, and Jesus taught us that we should have a fear of the Lord. In Matthew, 8, 10, in Matthew 10, Jesus commands us to have the right fear of the Lord in a most dramatic teaching. Luke references this morning in our prayer, and I think we used it last week in the message. If you remember the context, Jesus is unveiling before the disciples what's to come when he leaves them. Hatred and rejection is going to come for many of them. There will be love, there will be acceptance, there will be a family of God, but there will also be rejection. They will also encounter persecution for his name. And many will be tempted to give up on him and to disown him and to reject him for the sake of keeping their lives on this earth. But that, Jesus says, would be spiritually fatal. So out of love, he gives them a most sobering exhortation. He says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There is a nuance and a tenderness and a reverence and even a holy dread all mingled in this passage. Jesus says he keeps track of every hair on your head. Don't be afraid. Nothing's gonna happen in this world apart from my Father's will. Not even a bird crashes into a window apart from God's sovereign oversight. <laughs> You're worth a lot more than that bird. So our Father holds all things together with a very, very focused love for us specifically and precisely. He knows every hair on your head is what Jesus is saying. He keeps track of everything about you, every moment. But our awesome God holds our eternity 
in his hands. He holds the key of death and Hades, heaven and hell. And we will give an answer for how and whether we honored him before men or whether we traded in him, traded in him, him in for the approval of created beings and prostituted the creator. Did we love him enough to stand for him before those who insulted and mocked his name? And so the fear of the Lord sustains a reverent fear of displeasing him and forsaking him. But now let's consider Peter. I'm calling this, this, we might call this a tale of two Peters. Let's look at the first picture. It's the night of Jesus' arrest. The Lord is celebrating his last supper with the disciples. He lifts up the cup. And he says, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. It's the new covenant, Jesus says. But then immediately Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me. And so they all move into a time of wondering, who is this going to be? Who's going to betray me? And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, that was Peter's hyphen name, Simon Peter, like Anne-Marie. He says, Simon, Simon, behold, look, listen. Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And, and when you have turned again, Strengthen your brothers. Now what's going on in Peter's mind? Jesus just said someone's gonna betray him. As they argue about who's got the stuff to stand for him and who doesn't, who's a better disciple, who's not, who's gonna betray him. Jesus comes to Peter and he says, Peter, Satan has asked for you. And I think in the Greek it might mean all of you. But Jesus goes to Peter. He says, Jesus has asked for you that he might sift you like wheat. That is, when they made wheat, they would separate the good stuff from the bad stuff. They'd keep the wheat, they'd throw out this chaff. It was useless. Couldn't make good bread out of it, so they'd just trash it. So he's saying, Satan has asked to have you like so much waste material. And Peter seems to understand what Jesus must mean because he just said someone's gonna betray him. And he says, Lord, I don't know about this betrayal thing, like who you're talking about, but he says, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Son, before the sun rises this very day, you're gonna disown me three times. Like, you're, you're, you're telling me you're ready to go with me to prison and to death, and I'm telling you that before it's breakfast time, three times you're going to tell people you don't even know who I am. And remember, what's in the backdrop here, Jesus had taught the disciples that whoever denies him before men will be denied before his father. By the way, <laughs> this is another window into the truth that's, that we're so easily blind to. It's so hard for us to understand. That the most important person in this universe is God. That the most important relationship you have and the one to whom you're supposed to be the most loving and committed and loyal and devoted is not your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your boyfriend, your girlfriend. It's God. And if you can't see that, none of this will make much sense to you. It'll just sound like weird religion stuff. But Jesus acts as if he deserves the highest place in all of our hearts in the whole world. 
And everything in the Bible is based on that presupposition that the worst thing that we can do is not to murder someone. The worst thing we can do is not to sleep with someone. The worst thing we can do is not to be an evil, greedy, corporate Republican or a left-wing, homosexual Democrat. The worst thing we can do is to just ignore God and use his air and use the bones and the flesh and the brain matter that he gives us and sustains every moment and step on his ground every moment and think through the molecules and the dendrites and the axons in our brain that he gives us and enjoy the heartbeat that he gives us and sustains every moment and just use all that and enjoy the relationships and the friendships that he gives us and the food that he gives us every day and the clothes he gives us to wear and the gifts we have to take a job and to earn a living and just ignore him. God acts as if the way we treat him is the most important thing about us. And everything else is secondary to that and flows out of that. So again, if if you don't see that, this won't make sense that it would be such a big deal that this night Peter would deny Jesus and that Jesus would say, Satan wants you now. He says he should have your soul eternally because you're gonna sell me out tonight with words. You're not gonna crucify me. You're not gonna, um, you're not gonna say nasty things about me. All you're gonna do is disown me with words. With your words, you're gonna, you are my friend, you're my one of my dearest friends, and tonight you're gonna act like you never even met me. That's, that's what your heart's like. And Jesus is saying, for that, Satan has said, that man belongs to me now. Because that is how he has treated the most precious, most worthy person in the universe. And so, he belongs to me. Satan says, God, he should be counted as a soul that did not fear the Lord, that did not revere him, but disowned him. And in the midst of that, Jesus says something that we we breeze through, but that is amazing. Not only does he know Peter's shameful cowardice is coming and his dishonoring of Christ is ahead, he says in essence, Peter, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. I've interceded for you. And ultimately, because I have interceded for you, not because you're, you're ultimately going to be a good guy, not because ultimately you're going to come to your sentence. Ultimately, we'll just forget about that because I know you're better than that, Peter. No, he says, I have interceded for you so that your faith will not fail. You're going to return to me. And when you do, I need you to give courage to your family and my family and Jesus. And of course, most of us know the story. That very night into morning, Peter indeed lies three times over the next few hours that he even knows Jesus. Right after that final time, the rooster crows, the morning's coming. And then we read in Luke, just incredible picture. And immediately, while he was still speaking, that's while Peter was still speaking, the rooster crowed, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Jesus is probably at this point surrounded by guards in, 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 a, in a small group of executioners who are judging him sending him to his death. And Peter's outside wondering what's going on when this happens. And when it happens, the rooster crows and Jesus purposely looks at Peter. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Cock-a-doodle-doo, whatever the sound is, and the Lord looks. 
and Peter is destroyed inside. Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. You know what I think? This is my sanctified imagination. I think when the Lord looked at him, he didn't just want to remind him, I told you you would fail me. I don't think that's why he was looking at him in that moment. I think he was looking at him to say, Peter, remember what I said. I've interceded for you. When you return, not if, when you return, strengthen your brothers. Peter, it's going to be okay. I have you. Peter goes out and weeps bitterly. I wonder what the pain was like. He was sure he would love the Lord until death. And now he showed that he feared those who can kill the body rather than the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. His brokenness is revealed. The shallowness of his faith is exposed. The thinness of his real reverence and devotion is shown before him. And he's, he's realized, I've disowned my greatest friend at my greatest friend's lowest moment. I thought I was so much better than this. I said I would die for him. Can you relate? Full of zeal in the morning, full of shame in the evening. I can relate. Great quiet time, great devotion. I'm going to, Lord, I love you, so feel so full of you. By 7 p.m., I've lost my temper with my kids, said some discouraging thing to Jen. I've mishandled my day and how I've stewarded my time when I was working on that more than anything. Or fill in the blank for you. Weeks of victory over impurity. And then, I can't believe I'm back in the same place. Look at where I'd gone. I'd 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 made so much progress. Full of zeal in the morning. Full of shame in the evening. Peter doesn't just weep, he's, his tears are bitter. He is rent. But Jesus had said, Peter, your faith will not fail because I have prayed for you. What's that mean, though? What's this mean? Does it mean that Peter will simply recognize his mistake and run to Jesus for forgiveness? That, does it just mean that he will not give up on God's kind heart and will return for mercy like the prodigal? I mean, is that the beginning and end of the story, that Peter's gonna make a mistake and say, I'm sorry. I didn't know how bad I was, but now I do. Please forgive me. The end. I mean, is it okay to disown Jesus as long as you come back for forgiveness? I mean, honestly, that is a truth that's on display here. That we might disown Jesus and come back for forgiveness and he will forgive us. I, I, that is true. That is here. And so that's, that's a little bit uneasy to sit with, right? Like Paul says in Romans 6, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? If, if Jesus is just gonna forgive and forgive and forgive, what, what's the... What's the incentive not to fail him anymore? <laughs> Especially when things get really, really hard. But that's not uh, just what Jesus, Jesus says, Peter, your faith is not gonna fail, so you must strengthen your brothers. Like you're gonna have something to strengthen them with. I, I get a different sense when Jesus says that than simply, I stink. So bad. Forgive me, Lord. So what does it mean? I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. 
and then you must strengthen your brothers. I think we see the fullness of what this means about six weeks after this night. I think we gotta wait six weeks and then we get the answer to what Jesus means. Because in six weeks from this night, Peter is brought before the same men who crucified Jesus and who command him to stop preaching Jesus. And here's what Peter's answer is to the men who murdered his savior. He says this, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. This is the fear of the Lord, brothers and sisters. This is not the fear of murderers. He is not afraid. He has a holy reverence for his Lord and he is not afraid of these people. And soon after this, miracles are happening all over the city. There's an earthquake at a prayer meeting. The infant church is surging. Miraculous healings over those who just fall under Peter's shadow. This is Acts four and five. And they throw him into prison for this because he's still preaching and doing miracles in Jesus' name. And that night he's set free by an angel. And he, what does he do with his freedom? He goes right back to the temple and starts preaching again. And so they bring him back to Caiaphas, the high priest who murdered Jesus, his executioner. And Caiaphas says, didn't we forbid you from preaching this Jesus? And what does Peter say? I never knew the man. I do not know him, I tell you. No, he says, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. So they beat him and they command him, stop preaching Jesus. And here's his response with the other apostles. Here's what they do after being beaten and commanded, after being imprisoned and commanded. They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Brothers and sisters, what happened to Peter? What happened to him? I mean, for three years, he lived with Jesus. He went everywhere with Jesus. And as the Lord Jesus raised people from the dead, Peter saw. As Christ walked on water, Peter saw. And even partook of that a little bit that night, if you remember. He watched as his Lord commanded the weather, expelled every demon he encountered. He watched as Jesus essentially turned into light <laughs> and appeared with Elijah and Moses back from the dead. He saw all this and he heard Jesus teaching to fear the one who can destroy the body and the soul but not only those who can kill the body. He heard all that. But listen, on crucifixion eve, none of that kept Peter from disowning his Lord on that dreadful night. When push comes to shove after all that, Peter caved like a house of cards. He fell. But now we find him rejoicing at being beaten. <laughs> For Jesus' name, God, thank you that you consider me worthy to be beaten for proclaiming your name. What in the world happened? This is a man who fears his Lord that he can no longer see and yet does not fear the cruelest, most powerful men right in front of him. Jesus is gone. And Peter reveres him in a way he never did on earth. And the people who he can see, the, the most cruelest people who just murdered the Lord, he's not afraid of them. What happened to Peter? In Jeremiah 32, we find one of the most astonishing promises in the Bible. 
In this chapter, the Lord has been decrying the horror of Israel's idolatry. It is bad. The, the way they have deposed him as their God. They've defiled his temple with idolatries. This is Jeremiah 32. So we're going back like five, six centuries before Peter. They've even gotten to the point where they're offering their children as burnt offerings to demonic gods. And God says about them, they have turned to me their back and not their face. So they're showing me their back instead of looking to me. And though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. They've set up their abominations in the house that is called by my name to defile it. They built the high places of Baal, it's a demon god, in the valley of the son of Hinman to offer up their sons and daughters to Moloch, another demon god. Though I did not command them, nor did it even enter into my mind that they should do this abomination to cause Judah's sin. It's a powerful statement. The Lord is not unaware of all that happens in the world, but I, I think there's an expression here of emotion from God saying, this is so bad, it's as if it didn't even enter my mind. Like they, they've gone to a place that's beyond the borders of, of in one sense, God can conceive all things. In another sense, God is saying as an expression, I can't believe this. In his heart, that's what he's saying. And so then he recites a terrible judgment and destruction that's gonna fall on them. He's gonna destroy Jerusalem. He's gonna destroy the temple. Things are so bad. But then he says this astounding thing. One day, he says, listen to what he says. Behold, one day I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and my great indignation. And in other words, God is gonna just destroy Judah and he's gonna send them all to these terrible countries to be enslaved, to be persecuted. And he says, but one day I'm gonna gather them all back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever. For their own good and the good of their children after them. Listen, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. And I will rejoice in doing them good and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. This is God saying this with all his heart and all his soul. I am going to put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me for their own good and their own children after them. This is not a people coming to their senses and coming back to God. This is a people to whom God has come despite their rejection of him. And God has taken the initiative to change them so that they do come to him. You have to see this. Because brothers and sisters, this is the new covenant. The Lord says, though I have taught them persistently, they have not listened to receive instruction. The old covenant is being taught, proclaimed, it's good, it's laws are holy and right and true, and all of what he says is falling on deaf ears and hard hearts. But one day he promises, I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good. This is the new covenant. The old covenant was a covenant on tablets of stone outside of us. The new covenant is a covenant of laws written 
on our hearts. The old covenant is outside of us and can do nothing inside of us. The new covenant comes inside of us and gives us power to love and fear the Lord from our hearts. That, brothers and sisters, is what happened to Peter. The new covenant overtook him and made him new. More precisely, Jesus happened to Peter. Jesus happened to Peter. See, in the new covenant, the Lord does not simply give us a new heart. He gives us himself. Ezekiel 36, you might remember, not only does God promise a new spirit of the new covenant, he says, I will put my spirit, my very spirit inside you. That's what happened to Peter. Jesus had been with Peter for three years on earth, but now Jesus had left earth so that he could be in Peter forever. John 15, 18 through 20. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. He's speaking of his cross and his resurrection and leaving them to go to the Father's right hand. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. I am. In you, you in me. That is what happened to Peter. The new covenant meant that Jesus was now one with Peter's spirit, living in Peter's spirit, helping Peter, becoming Peter's strength, Jesus becoming his strength, Jesus' life becoming his life, Jesus' power to fear his father becoming Peter's power to fear his father, Jesus' strength to obey his God becoming Peter's strength to obey his God, Jesus' heart to love his father becoming one with Jesus' heart, becoming one with Peter's heart so that Peter would love his father. And Peter did not become perfect at Pentecost. He was not perfect before Caiaphas. He did not become perfect when Jesus entered his soul, but someone perfect had come into his soul. Jesus had come to do what Peter could not do for himself. And though Peter would battle with the fear of man his whole life, we, we'll, we'll see him after this New covenant life begins. We'll see Peter struggle with the fear of man significantly. In Galatian, before Cornelius, at least in, in, in Galatia. Cornelius might be a different matter. But by the time Paul goes to the Galatian church, and Peter struggles to live out the gospel in front of the, the Gentiles and the Jews there. It's a fear of man issue that Peter has. So he's not perfect but a perfect person lives in him who's never gonna leave him alone, who's never gonna abandon him, who's gonna be perfect in his faithfulness to Peter, who's gonna be perfect in his interceding for Peter, who's gonna be perfect in his forgiving Peter again and again, who's gonna be perfect in Peter to continue to work in Peter repentance his whole life long, faith and belief his whole life long. Peter will never give up on Jesus because perfect Jesus will never give up on Peter. So we don't want to believe the idea that Peter met Pentecost and he was some spiritual robot, you know, uh, with the new covenant came on him and now he never had to battle doubt, he never had to resist temptation, he never had to hold on to scripture and we can never relate to him. That's not true. But now, at the same time, he was different. The covenant was different. There was a crucial change. He had a new life in Christ. The old Peter was gone. There was no more Peter. There was only Peter in Christ left or, or brought into being, rather. And everything he did, he did with very God inside him, closer than his own skin living inside him. And he would never be the same again. He could, he could not be the same again. 
because of who now lived inside of him forever. You know, before I met Jesus Christ in 1992, I was 20, and most of that time, I had only, I had exclusively only, really, hopelessness. Like when, when it gets down to the very core of it, I was a hopeless person, my emotions. I had no hope. It was for me, in, in my emotional experience, a constant companion, hopelessness. I have had many, many terrible moments since Christ came into my heart. But hopelessness has only been a taunt. It's only been a bully. He's only tried to come and pick fights with me. He's never been able to be a permanent resident again. Jesus is my permanent resident. He lives in me to live through me, to be in me and to do in me what I could never do in myself. Oh, how I need him. I need him so much all the time. I feel like I know that a lot. I just need you so much, God. I'm so weak in myself. But since I have him, I think that may not be my greatest need anymore. I think my greatest need is to believe that I have him. I think I need that so much to recognize and believe that I have him. And so do we. Brothers and sisters, the new covenant is Jesus. And Jesus has given the new covenant to you. He has given himself to you. And to you who might be here, who, who do not know if you know him, but long to, he offers it to you this morning. For all of us who do know him, as we take communion this morning, let's encourage our hearts that we have him. As we take in the cup and we take in the bread, let us recognize Jesus is in us. That's what his cross has done, made it possible for him, made it sure that he would be in us. And let us honor him by acknowledging that, that having him, we never need to go a moment longer thinking of ourselves alone. Just us against sin. Just us against the world. Just us against the devil. No, the new covenant says it's Jesus in us. So our sin cannot control us. It's Jesus in us. So the devil cannot overcome us. It's Jesus in us. So we can love our father and revere his name. Let's celebrate the new covenant this morning.